This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. What is life like as a straight male escort? It's a question you have probably never pondered, uh, but it is answered fulsomely in this 2018 interview with John O. John's an Australian man who ended up in this unusual job after his IT business failed in the GFC, the Global Financial Crisis. This is Saturday morning at its most unusual, uh, its most surprising. I really enjoyed it. I hope you do too. New Zealand and New South Wales are the only places in the world where sex work is fully decriminalised and... While the clientele is predominantly male, women also choose to pay for sex. Exclusively heterosexual male escort work is, however, still a niche industry. And it's interesting to think about why. John O is based in Sydney. He is a sex worker, or a male escort, as he calls it, He charges about $400 an hour, $600 for two hours. And he told me why he entered the industry. Uh, Very simply, the need for money. So uh, post the um, global financial crisis in uh, 2008, 2009, uh, the business that I was uh, running at the time, which was um, around IT, uh, took a, a very bad hit. Um, most of my clients simply ran out of money. Their businesses were affected very badly by um, the crash. And therefore that flowed on to me as a a secondary service provider. And uh, I needed another form of income to support myself and my partner at the time. And the sex trade was undented by the GFC? Uh, No, not at all, really quite the opposite. It, it was hit um, possibly even harder because our industry obviously is a, an expensive luxury. It's not even an, an affordable luxury. But that timing coincided with uh, the, the rise of the iPhone and um, uh, the Apple iPad and so forth. What that created was an opportunity for women to be able to research services like mine in privacy. You can imagine that um, researching on a family computer or work computer would uh, not be um, an appropriate thing to be doing. So prior to the the uptake of uh, personal mobile computing devices, it was hard for a lot of women to do the kind of research they needed to to discover someone like me um, at all. And I believe that the the industry of straight male workers for women, the market, sorry, rather than industry, the market for, for my service has grown in line with the the rise of mobile phones. So even though the GFC hit the industry very hard, um, there was a a large untapped market there at the time. So while the total potential market for my services may have been decreasing, there were very few 
people uh, like me in the industry and most of the client base either didn't know we existed or had never um, had a way to contact us. So does that mean there are an increasing number of male escorts now? Um, Yes, to some degree. Uh, It's always hard to quantify. Also, it does, sorry to interrupt, it does strike me that men are less likely to speak out about being in the prostitution industry than women. I mean, women, it's a political issue for women to speak out, Mm. uh, being a sex worker. But for men, it's it's much less evident that they will speak out about it. Do you find that interesting? Historically, women have been the more visible and probably more numerous um, members of the, the industry. So the advocacy systems and organisations have been built by and around women primarily. Also, um, well, secondarily to to women uh, is gay men. So straight men like me are a tiny minority. And gay men in the industry, I think they really just get on with what they do. They have less issues uh, with discrimination and with violence, uh, I believe, um, than women do. So they don't have a need to be vocal. I have basically no need to be vocal about um, advocacy for the industry because uh, I have no physical risk associated with doing this work. So it would be very easy for me not to say anything. I don't have to do that to improve my safety or the performance of my business or my safety from... um, aggressive policing or things like that. I'm lucky that in New South Wales, as with uh, New Zealand, what I do is not criminalised anymore. So why do you speak out? I mean, you do, you have a quite an elaborate and uh, outspoken website. You've said that sex mm. work as an industry is entering a dark age. What is mm. it that makes you speak out about something that, as you say, doesn't doesn't require that at this stage? The short answer is wanting to be part of the community, wanting to contribute. So we hear a lot about white male privilege and my attitude over the last several years that I've been uh, participating in advocacy around the industry or for the industry uh, has been that I'm exercising a little bit of that privilege in favour of my less privileged peers. Why then are women less likely to hire a prostitute than men? It's the theme of a blog by a Christchurch-based male escort who isn't as public as you. I know that you're Mm. familiar with his argument. Do you agree? What is it? I think there's a a few factors. Probably the biggest one is um, stigma. A lot of women might like to do so, but the uh, the potential um, social risks to them being found out, having done it, um, are way more serious than they are for a man. Are they? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm. It's there's kind of a uh, I would say in 
or my experience of life of of people, it's basically a, um, a don't ask, don't tell kind of attitude towards men using sex work services, whereas no one um, would have the same kind of attitude towards women doing the same. Women are not given that same freedom that men are. You know, men are given a pass, basically, whereas women are always being held to a, a different standard of um, behavior. That's the, I think that's the biggest thing that stops women from using the services of male sex workers. And there's a few more beyond that. Um, the next being not even knowing that our services exist. That's a, a really significant factor, um, and hence why smartphones and tablets were so important to uh, making the industry um, a viable one for me to work in in the, long, uh, in the past. If you don't know that a service exists, then you can't even know that you want to partake in it. So the visibility of our industry has been really important uh, to bringing more women into uh, to buying our services. And possibly on par with that, of course, is um, financial inequality. Women simply don't have as much money as men. And many women who do have money don't have uh, full control over it or they don't have the privacy of um, control over it. I'm not sure a... that's still true, are you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, without question. There are talking to my peers, seeing the kind of people who use um, uh, female and gay male sex workers' services uh, and comparing that to my client base. Do women, do you think, want the same from a sex worker as men do? Pretty much, yes. I was I was thinking that, <laughs> that maybe women would would want more conversational intimacy rather than than just sex, but maybe that's not what men want either. I don't know. That's correct. So the mistake isn't that women just want sex. The mistake is the assumption about what men want. So if you talk to female workers uh, like I do, then I hear the same stories. You know, the, the clients who see me, um, they want the same, they want sex, but they also want a glass of wine and conversation and they want cuddles and they want intimacy. And my female peers say that their clients want the same kind of things too. You know, maybe the balances are a little bit different. Maybe I spend more time talking and sitting on the couch, but at the end of the day, everyone wants the same kind of things. I've often wondered about that intimacy. What's the value in the intimacy that you have to pay for? The number of people in this world who, even though we're surrounded by people physically in our work and surrounded by people on social media and so forth, who simply don't have enough, enough 
physical touch in their lives, for instance, is huge. We're more connected to other people than ever, but we're also more isolated. So for a lot of my clients, simply having someone who will make them a priority is enormously valuable. Even though it's because they're paying for it. Well, they pay for my time. That's, or they, they can't pay for anything else. Everything else comes from me, and it's something that I give willingly. What if you don't like them? It's not a problem that I generally have to deal with. So you mentioned my website being um, large and detailed, comprehensive before. Mm -hmm. That's for a very good reason. Um, The kind of person who I would find interesting to spend time with reads my website and says, oh, he sounds like an interesting person because I spend so much time talking about the things that I care about and not just things about sex work specifically, but the things that I do in my, my life day to day and so forth. The kind of person who would find me boring or not interesting reads the website and says, oh, he's boring, and they go on to someone else, <laughs> and which, you know, which is perfect. That is exactly how it should be. I don't want every client. I just want the ones who I can connect with and relate to and therefore offer a good service to. John O is an Australian male sex worker. Do you regard yourself as a therapist? Uh, I'm not a therapist, no. I don't see myself as such, but what I do has therapeutic aspects to it. In terms of...? Um, someone who's going to uh, listen and be non-judgmental um, and be supportive. They're all uh, features of uh, the, a service that a therapist would provide. Are women more self-conscious than men? I mean, both of us are talking across this abyss, right? Because I, I don't mm. know how... But you know more about women and men than I do, I guess, because of your business. So do you think mm, women possibly. are more, do you think women are more self-conscious than men? Yes, women are probably further generally further towards the self-conscious end than men are. Yes. And so how do you how do you deal with that? Just by being nice. Really simply, that's about the the extent of it. And and um, do you intend to kind of instill confidence in them? I mean, you must get women who have never done this kind of thing before. mm -hmm. Do you change them, do you think? Is it a process by which they are in some way liberated? Uh, Certainly, yes. A lot of people come to me with an idea in their head about how their life is or how it should be, about what sex is, about what sex should be, what it, how they can experience sex. And they go away realizing that those preconceptions weren't 
actual truths and they discover something new about themselves and um, their lives and their sexuality. So the best example of that would be uh, women who have never had penetrative sex when they come to me. And often it will be someone who's 29, just about to turn 30, or just about to turn 35 or 40 or even 45. And they're in a position where their life is dominated by the fact that they've never had sex with another person. Uh, It ruins their relationship with men. It ruins their relationship with women as well because they get left behind. The older they are, they're not able to participate in the the conversations of their, uh, their friends who have partners and then eventually have husbands, have children, and they're still left in this position where they've been focusing on their education and their career and they never had Uh, the time to have a relationship and to have sex. And it blocks them off from all sorts of opportunities um, and experiences in life. So they come to me and sometimes they're, they're terrified of the idea of physical intimacy with a man, but they're at a point where they're, they're desperate for something to change in their lives. So in desperation, they come to me, they have the experience of having penetrative sex for the first time. And it's like, that's it. That was all it was. (laughs) No offense. It may have, yeah. and, And when I say that, it's not to say, oh, it's nothing, it's unimportant or it wasn't even enjoyable. It's, it's not a big thing. They realize that this thing they've built up in their mind to be enormous and that they can't get past uh, whenever they're talking or even just talking to a guy. It's the fact that they've never had sex is blocking them from being able just to have a normal conversation, even if it's without any, um, you know, any intention or desire. How common do you think then that is for you? Very, very, very common. Really? Yeah, so I probably see uh, up to half a dozen women a year who've never had sex. And um, for every one that is coming to me, there must be a thousand out there who are in the same position. And do you think it's the same for men? Do you think that's a reason why men would go to a sex worker? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. There's lots, lots of men in exactly the same position uh, emotionally and, um, and physically. Do women who are married come to you because they don't want to have an affair, but they do want to have sex outside the marriage? Um, yes, that's a, a thing that has become more common. How do you feel so about de- that? Uh, I'm not making a judgment about my clients and their situation. Um, What a lot of these women say to me is, I love my husband. He's my best friend. I'm very happy with him, but he's not interested in sex 
or he's not interested in sex as much as I want, or he's not interested in sex in the way that I want. And they don't want to burn that relationship to the ground and destroy it just over the fact that they're not having the sex that they want. We seem to equate the whole monogamy thing with being the most important thing in a marriage. Well, sex in a marriage is just one part of it. And if we say, oh, well, you know, you can't have sex outside of marriage because that's terrible. Well, is it more terrible than destroying a relationship by walking away from it just because you want sex? Yeah, that's a good question. What about complications? You know, women who develop feelings for you. Mm. There is a certain hormonal thing that happens, you know, oxytocin, bonding, Mm. so on and so forth. How do you deal with that? Um, On a case-by-case basis. So it's not something you can avoid entirely, and particularly because the majority of my clients are long-term. That's a, a genuine risk. And at the end of the day, I, I don't um, just say, oh, look, you know, I have a, a hard and fast rule. If someone develops feelings for me, then I can't see you again, blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't think that's fair to people because I'm not, um, well, I have no right to judge them, firstly. And at the end of the day, they're adults. and as long as the situation isn't detrimental or negative to me and my life, then how someone feels about me uh, is, that's their business. Nobody starts stalking you and demanding that you are catering to them and them alone, ever? No. I, I have had one person who I saw very briefly who then... Uh, behave very badly on one occasion and had significant personal issues and I refused to see her again and as a result she then started stalking and harassing me but that's absolutely a um, uh, that's happened once in my nine-year career so it's not by any means uh, a common thing. So you are based in Sydney and Melbourne and Canberra, are you? You travel between these cities? Uh, I live in Sydney and I spend time in the Southern Highlands and Canberra and I do travel to, uh, to Melbourne on request these days. Do you think, I'm sorry to keep on kind of trying to compare, but but I am. Do you think you have more... Do you think you have more regular clients than the average female sex worker? Uh, yes, I believe I do. Why do you, well, apart from the fact that maybe you're a genius at sex and conversation, um, why do you think that is? Uh, it's not particularly about me. I think I'm good at what I do, but... I think the fact that most of my clients are regulars are, well, is about how women um, 
connect with a sex worker versus how men connect with a sex worker. So while I said earlier that we, male and female, all basically want the same things, but maybe in different proportions, um, the uh, let's just talk about the risk. So in a female worker with a male client context, the risk is all with the female worker, um, particularly physically. If we reverse that, so with a, fe a female client with a male worker like myself, the risk is still with the woman. So she's reaching out and making contact with someone who the only um, thing she knows about me is what she's read online. And you can imagine that coming to see me for the first time is actually a really big deal. Uh, and there is literally a, um, a level of physical risk there for a woman to do that, uh, especially if a lot of my clients meet me at my apartment, even uh, the first time we have a booking. And therefore, if a woman finds a male sex worker who she is um, comfortable with and happy with and feels safe with, then she's much less likely to um, want to go looking for another worker because then she has to go through this whole process of vetting him again and developing the, uh, the connection um, and feeling safe. Whereas for men, uh, it's very, very unlikely that there's ever any physical risk for them. So they can try different workers. How do other men react to the revelation or the news that you are a sex worker, a male ex-escort? I generally don't tell other people what I do. Um, I have... Do you have a partner? Only... Um, no, I don't. I, um, at this point in time, I have a very small circle of friends and they know what I do. But the general reaction uh, of people on hearing what I do is, oh, wow, you know, tell me more. So they want, they want to know about what I do. For me, I'm, I'm not really interested in talking to people that I meet about what I do, sure. um, unless it's, it's pertinent. Um, I'm not defined by my job. There's a lot of other things about me that I would rather be talking with people about. At the end of the day, what I do is a job. And while it's one that I love and I, I care about the industry deeply, um, when I'm done with work, like most people, I like to walk away from my work. I like to have that time away that makes it easier to come back to it. Do you get, I mean, I get the impression from your website that there are a, a, a number of disabled people who need your services. Mm -hmm, that's how, correct, yes. How, how does that work? Uh, in New South Wales, there's an organisation called Touching Base, and it's job is to uh, connect people with disabilities with appropriate sex workers. Um, you may or may not be familiar with a documentary called Scarlet Road made by um, a sex worker called Rachel Watton. 
and she uh, was looking for male workers uh, to join Touching Base's um, sort of stable of, uh, of potential sex workers because Touching Base was getting more inquiries from women with disabilities who wanted uh, to use the services of a male sex worker. Uh, so she contacted me and um, I had a partner at the time who worked in disability care. So I had a reasonable amount of exposure to um, the industry. And so I thought, well, if I can do this, then I probably should. So that was how I, I started. And what you were saying earlier about people who'd never had sex, virgins, mm. A lot of these people would be in that category? Basically all of them that I see, yes. Right. So a lot of my um, clients with disabilities have uh, fairly significant disabilities like cerebral palsy and they are effectively quadriplegic and nonverbal. So for them, having sex at all is physically very difficult and requires uh, support of um, carers and so forth. Uh, and you know, I've had people uh, accuse me of being um, um, strangely discriminatory against uh, people with disabilities in the past by saying that for uh, some people with disabilities, a sex worker is their only option. And that's not to say that people with disabilities can't have relationships or rewarding relationships or sexual relationships. They can. But for some people, it's incredibly difficult and dangerous for them. <laughs> they can't just go on Tinder and hook up with someone. Um and they wouldn't feel safe or comfortable doing it. So they come to someone like me because it gives them control and safety. And that's the, the thing that they, they need and are looking for. In your website, you say sex work as an industry is entering a dark age. What do you mean? Why? There is a very strong and growing movement in the world in the world to end demand for sex work. Uh, it started um, mostly in uh, Europe and there's a model of sex work regulation which is um, colloquially known as the Nordic model because it came out of Nordic countries. And what it aims to do is to... Uh, end all demand for sex work services. And uh, to do that, what they do is decriminalize the sale of sex by sex workers, but criminalize the purchase of sex by clients. And they have this misguided idea that somehow, if you keep punishing people who want to buy sex, that a, it makes life better for sex workers, which it demonstrably does not. It actually increases the level of violence that we experience and it decreases our income, which is perfectly understandable in both cases because it drives 
the industry underground uh, if clients are being hunted by police. I imagine that the thinking behind that is that it protects young women from sex trafficking. That's what these people would have you believe, but um, the reality is that sex trafficking is a vastly overstated problem. It's one that's poorly researched. There are actually very um, few good data sets around um, sex trafficking. And generally what happens is that the people who love to bray on about sex trafficking and how um, there are lots of women are being sex trafficked all the time, um, the big problem is that we're now seeing a lot of conflation of consensual sex work with trafficking. So, for instance, you have people in Alaska in the US, sex workers who have crossed a border to be a sex worker, so they've gone to Alaska, who are being arrested and prosecuted for trafficking themselves. The ludicrousness of that situation, I think, is fairly obvious. It's a particularly contentious area at the moment, female agency, isn't it? You know, either either women are in charge or they're not in charge, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's hard to tell. Well, there's a really easy way to tell, and that is that you ask the woman. And you rely on the fact that the woman is quite free to speak out. Uh, Obviously, there are um, potential uh, issues there that affect whether someone can speak to you freely. But that's the starting point. So what we hear all the time is, oh, these these women were rescued from a brothel, blah, blah, blah. But in that case, law enforcement generally just go to a place that's providing sex work services and they arrest everyone there. And then they are the ones coercing the statements being made by the workers. And you never hear the fact that they're saying to workers, well, if you tell us that you were trafficked, then you'll get access to support services. But if you don't say that you're trafficked, then we're going to re- arrest you for um, for prostitution or something like that. You'll be charged. So there is a vast amount of dishonesty in how sex workers are dealt with by law enforcement uh, in a lot of places around the world. So stigma And Puritanism is being dressed up as humanitarianism. As it ever is. (laughs) Can you think of anything that would make you want to give up this work? Yes, there are a few things. One would be if um, this industry was uh, re-criminalised in New South Wales. That would make me think very hard about it. Are the chances of that? Well, there's always a chance. So I became involved in activism around sex work uh, back in 2015-odd or so um, because we were having a parliamentary inquiry in New South Wales into um, the sex work industry. And I think since we we had decriminalisation implemented here in 1995, I have a feeling it's something like there's been 10 parliamentary inquiries or inquiries of some sort into the industry. 
So decriminalisation has hung on and survived here, primarily because I think there are still enough politicians around who remember the bad old days when it was criminalised in New South Wales and the police controlled the industry. Um, it was terrible. It was really bad. It damaged the police force and their integrity and their ability to do their job. And it corrupted politics in this state. It was incredibly damaging having sex work being criminalised. And enough people understand that, that we've never had um, any strong likelihood of criminalisation being brought back in. Even the police... Um, don't want sex work criminalised again. So the Police Workers Union, I think, were strongly behind maintaining decriminalisation at the last uh, parliamentary review. But it's under attack always. There are people in the Christian lobby and things like that who would love to see sex work um, criminalised again. And if enough of those people gained enough power in Parliament, it's possible that it could happen. So short of that happening, there is mm. anything else that would make you give up the sex work? A partner who insisted that you do? Uh, no, that wouldn't be one. Um, one of the, the things that I've come to realise as a, um, an adult is that you have to do the things that you love doing. And I love my job. I love my work. Um, I wouldn't accept a partner saying to me that, no, you can't do that work because this is something that I enjoy doing. It's a legal trade and I think it provides a, uh, a valuable service for a lot of people. It was Sydney-based sex worker John O.